Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth, Heresy, and Hearsay, Episode 12. I'll have another. Every once in a while, I like to go off the reservation with the narrative. This is one of those times, guys. I mentioned that I love to homebrew. I find beer to be a fascinating subject. Beer lovers will enjoy this episode, and if you were not a lover of the fermented carbonated beverages, pull up a seat. You'll definitely learn something that you didn't know before. We already know beer is an ancient beverage, probably second most ancient to mead. It was once thought that they got the idea to make beer when water got into the vessel they used to make bread, and voila, beer was invented. Actually, they are finding that it was probably the other way around. That ancient man wasn't sure what to do with the spent grain while brewing, and that is how bread making became a thing. I couldn't tell you for sure. I wasn't around back then. We know that beer has went through a lot of changes over the centuries, so so fast forward a bit to Prohibition. I wondered, would beer have been any different before Prohibition? And what was up with Prohibition? It's easy to criticize why it became illegal to purchase and sell beer, wine, and spirits, I do understand one side of this argument. With the emergence of the middle class in America, imagine being the wife of a factory worker who gets off work on Friday, paycheck in hand, cashing that check in at O'Flaherty's bar, you know the one that's on the way home. Too many times, too many guys getting off work, cashing the check only to have a beer or two after a hard day, indeed a hard week at the widget factory. If that's where it ended, probably no big deal, right? But too often, one beer turned into most of said paycheck. Imagine going home with maybe enough money left for bread and milk, but the rent? Sorry, love, that's going to be late. The Timberts movement was fueled largely by the women of the nation who had only recently gotten the right to vote. The Temperance League and others held the position that most of the ills of society were caused or could be fixed by getting rid of alcoholic consumption. You can see how someone might think that, so I can understand the positions. The Volstead Act in 1917 was the first real attempt at trying to limit or eliminate alcohol beverages in this country. Although the effort was led largely by the Republican Party, who controlled both houses and the Oval Office, the lines began to get blurred, and not by party lines, but between the dry bones, who were in favor of prohibition, and the wets, who opposed it. Both parties had dry bones and wets, and the polarization began to set in. I can see where many would think this a noble experiment. 
So what did we get with this noble experiment? We got a criminal element that has been with us ever since, a loss of tax revenue that contributed to the Great Depression. And when I mentioned the Depression, America became depressed in more ways than one. This social experiment did nothing but prove that human behavior and indeed morality cannot be legislated, something that organized crime already understood with open arms. By the early 1930s, the mood of the country had been changing, what with the Depression and all. One prominent senator was quoted to say, America needs a drink. Franklin Roosevelt campaigned on repealing Prohibition, but the question arose as to how to do that. Prohibition was brought in by a constitutional amendment, the 18th Amendment, Thus, it would probably take an amendment to get rid of prohibition, and that takes time, sometimes years. This is the brilliance of Roosevelt. While trying to push for such an amendment, in the meantime, Roosevelt asked his people to go out and find out what percentage of alcohol in a beverage could with any credibility be called a non-alcoholic beverage. Previously, 0.05%. Less than half a percent, by the way, and that's not much. His people came back to tell him, uh, Mr. President, anything 3.2% and under, we can with some credibility call a non-alcoholic beverage. Roosevelt asked Senator Pat Harrison and Representative Thomas Cullen, Thomas H. Cullen, to present the bill which quickly passed in March of 1933, about a month after Roosevelt took office. And just like that, you could go down to the corner and legally buy a beverage that tasted like beer. Yes, 3.2%, but after 13 years, who would know the difference? Or for that matter, who would care? The 21st Amendment that allowed the sale and consumption of wine and spirits and such was passed only nine months later to give you an idea as to how done with prohibition everybody was. And happy days were here again. At this point, after the 21st Amendment was passed, I don't believe the restriction of 3.2% beer was still in effect. So why did it stick around for so long? There were a few reasons. For one thing, there was still a, a depression going on. Lighter beer uses less barley grains, thus is cheaper to make. For a quarter, you could buy a couple beers for you and a friend and leave a tip to the bartender. Not too long after that, with a war going on, much of the grain was being shipped overseas for the war effort, so it was in short supply. At this time, women entered the workforce in large numbers and tended to prefer the lighter fare anyway. By the 1950s, this style was all anyone really remembered, and that was just what an American beer had become. Often the laughingstock internationally until the craft brewing craze in the 1990s. 
So what did beer taste like before Prohibition? A little history. Pilsner slash lager beer was only invented in the 1850s when a method to kiln a lighter colored grain was combined with the relatively new lager yeast in Eastern Europe and Germany. Migrating to the U.S., many German brewers came here hoping to knock the socks off of their new countrymen with this new trendy beverage, only to find they couldn't get enough of the grains that they needed. What? Couldn't get enough grains? In the breadbasket of the world? How's that? Though there was plenty of typical base barley called six-row type grain, what they couldn't get in this country were certain Vienna and Munich-style grains that impart a certain caramel-like sweetness. So these guys, being the great brewers that they were, innovated and in the process created what became known as the American Pilsner, later to be called Pre-Prohibition Pilsner. To get the sweetness they needed, they could use corn or rice, or both, something that would not be allowed in their old country, Germany, due to the, how do I say this, the Reinheitsgebot purity laws, still in effect today that prohibit anything other than grains, water, and hops. Yes, there was a law about putting anything but those three ingredients. Not sure what the penalty was for breaking that law. Now, adding rice or corn is called an adjunct. And many of today's American beers also use rice and or corn, but the big three American brewers use those ingredients as more of an instead-agent rather than an adagent. The pre-prohibition beers used rice or corn in addition to the barley, not instead of barley. So this beer was stronger and sweeter than what we got after prohibition. Yeah, no 3.2% light beer here. This wasn't your grandfather's beer. Well, actually, it was your great-grandfather's beer, but you know what I'm trying to say. This is one of my favorite styles, a slightly amber or golden hue and a taste that won't quit. So what was the mindset across the pond on all of this? The idea of any kind of prohibition on a beverage of choice would have been as foreign to them as blood pudding is to us. They understood a Great Depression isn't just a financial crisis. No doubt you have at least heard of the English-style beer called IPA. IPA stands for Indian Pale Ale. Back when the sun never set on the British Empire, British troops were stationed all over the globe. In India, they were on a war of conquest. Young troops miss home and the things that make home. Morale was bad. The beer in India was not considered even drinkable. And in the long sea journey from England to India, beer would spoil by the time it arrived. So the brewers in England concocted a beverage that was pleasant enough and used more hops 
Hops, by the way, isn't just a bittering ingredient, but is also a preservative. The IPA coming from home was an instant hit with the troops. Morale improved. The rest is history. And the Indian Pale Ale became known as the beer that conquered India. For better or for worse, I might add. IPAs were a big part of the craft beer resurgence, and for a while, I had to be in the mood to partake in this bitter beverage. Until the West Coast IPA came along, using what is known as hop bursting. Hop bursting is using a small amount of hops at the beginning of a boil, and more and more as the boil went on, giving the beer a hop-forward but not overly bitter taste. I haven't heard the term hop bursting much lately, since the emergence of the New England or Hazy IPA came along. In this beer, all of the hops are used at the end of the boil and rendered a hazy look with the use of wheat and or oat flakes. The beer resembles orange juice and in fact takes on a juicy taste thanks to the citrus-like hops used in this beer. One beer that often gets a bad rap for being dark and bitter are the porter-slash-stouts. These beers are actually the sweetest and least hopped beer in spite of their dark or even black color. I enjoy making these beers, There is so much you can do with them. There's licorice stout. There's chocolate stout. There's peanut butter stout. There's chocolate and peanut butter stout. There's cherry stout. There's hazelnut stout. There's vanilla stout. There's chocolate with vanilla stout. Then you got your caramel stout. Okay, sorry about this. When I was writing this episode, all I could hear was Bubba Gump in my ear. So, you get the idea. The beer uses a light-colored basic base barley with some roasted barley and some chocolate grains for some color. And then it is up to your imagination and your creativity. In closing, I want to give all of you some ammunition You can always say to that friend that only drinks Bud Light or Coors Light that a U.S. president passed a law that said what they are drinking is not really beer. After that look of incredulity that you're going for, you can always cite the Cullen Harrison Act of 1933. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as I've enjoyed telling Email me, myth, heresy, and hearsay at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.